Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm excited that it is the beginning of Triple Crown season with the 145th Run for the Roses at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky on Saturday, May 4th, 2019, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas which marked 154 years since the, sink- the sinking of the Sultana on the Mississippi River near Mound City, which is now Marion, Arkansas, on April 27, 1865. Tonight, we'll continue our four-part discussion of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Wesley Cook, also known as Mamiya Abu-Jamal, beginning with Abu-Jamal's direct appeal of his conviction and sentence, which was made to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Then we'll talk about the various post-conviction claims that have been raised by Abu Jamal in state court. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. How are you? Good evening, Lisa. Uh, I'm not doing too bad, and I totally almost went into my... uh work etiquette as soon as I said it I almost said hey I'm Michael Carnahan (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I wanted to ask you something uh, about the uh, triple crown now Mm -hmm. not trying to make Arkansas sound special or anything but you live in Arkansas I know you uh, are familiar with Oakland is the uh, I know we have a big year end race I believe it's the year end race uh, is that part of the triple crown? Because I know, like, supposedly the winner no. of our race uh, has an advantage in the Kentucky Derby or something. No, no. Oak Lawn has the Arkansas Derby, which is one of the qualifying races um, leading to the Kentucky Derby. The, the three-year-old Colts who are eligible, or Phillies who are eligible, for the Kentucky Derby have to earn points in the early season to get into the Kentucky Derby. And so so the Arkansas Derby, Florida Derby, Louisiana Derby, and some of the other races uh, during the January, February, March, April uh, part of the spring 
and late winter are part of the races that they they earn those points in. Okay. And then I think after... I know they're kind of, yeah. you know, a little bit fancier, not trying to dumb it down to, uh, you know, the common man or anything, but it's a lot like NASCAR. You earn points and then, you know, a little bit. championship, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Triple Crown is the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, which is in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and then the Belmont Stakes, which is in... Uh, New York at Belmont Race Track. Those okay. are the three races of the of the Triple Crown. Well, Lisa, I didn't know this till just literally right now because he proceeded to call in without telling me. But you have a guest on the line, uh, Brad. Oh, Goldman, good. I guess do some talking with us tonight, so I'm gonna go ahead and bring him <laughs> live as well. Great. If it if my internet likes to work, there we go. He's live. Hey Brad, how you doing? I'm doing great. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's that time of the year. Honestly, uh, you know, you were talking about the Kentucky Derby and horse racing, uh, maybe frowned upon oh, in certain circles, but but I uh, but, uh, I mean, horse racing to me has, has been fun. And to answer your question, Michael, they instituted the point system, and I believe it was to to kind of get some some competition, I guess, within the horse racing field, because at one point, you know, you had a ton of horses that, that uh, were uh, used to be eligible by, I think it was prize money, was it not, Lisa? That may have been. I've only come back to horse racing since uh, California Chrome in 2014. Well, well you know, I was a trainer back in the 70s and the 80s, and you know, of course, my grandfather um, lived and died by the racetrack, uh, whether that be a good thing or a bad thing. But, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about the point system either until the Arkansas Derby uh, when they were talking about, you know, they assigned certain amount of points for first, second, third, or fourth or whatever. And and mm-hmm. so I think one of the front runners was already pretty much qualified, but a couple of other horses were actually able to make the field because of that. But but the right. interesting thing, and Lisa, I don't know if you mentioned it, but the, one of the interesting things about that was is that the the races get longer as you go throughout the Triple Crown, which in essence actually you know shows the athleticism of those that have been able to accomplish the Triple Crown, which used to be a feat that um, I guess we go back to the I think it was '79 was one of the last ones until here recent history. Uh, but I think what does it go like a mile and a sixteenth? It's a and, mile you know, and an eighth. Wait, okay. I, I, I believe the Kentucky Derby is one mile and an eighth. The Preakness Stakes is a mile and a quarter, and Belmont Stakes is a mile and a half. And I mean, you think about that. I mean, you're talking about a, a Triple Crown winner, not only besting, and another thing too, and the only, and at least I know y'all do clear and convincing. But I wanted to ask your opinion on something. I've always thought that they should should allow a horse to to have run in the Kentucky Derby. Now I know that the field whittles itself down with injury and contendership, mm-hmm. but I I just never saw the 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 fairness, I guess, of having horses that have never raced 
in any of the other two races come in and be able to enter like the Belmont or the Preakness. I never agreed with that, but that's just me, though. That that has broken many a heart. California Chrome uh, in 2014, that broke all of his fans' hearts because Tonalist came in fresh. And but California Chrome in the Belmont had a horrible trip. Things didn't line up. He was injured at the gate. So even if Tonalist hadn't been in the race, I don't know that he would have been able to overcome. And the Belmont, the reason um, renting it is really a huge accomplishment is because it's longer, it's actually worth against the horses who've been able to win the Kentucky Derby and Preakness because it gives other horses a chance to overtake them, especially closers that run at the, at the back and then come up in the last few furlongs. Yeah, so, I think but yeah, I, I kind of wish that they, I wish they'd make you have to run in at least Kentucky Derby or Preakness in order to be able to run in Belmont. But that's not the way they yeah. do it, and I don't think it's the way they want to do it. And so, um, but the owners of California Chrome, one of them took a lot of heat because he was very hurt that Tonalist was able to come in fresh and when Belmont, when he felt, you know, he had the colt to get the triple crown. And, uh, and you know, and, and it's, uh, the, the, it's just, I don't know, my bucket list, though, is uh, I want one of the, uh, I don't know if I like it, because I really don't know what it is, but it's that, the, the mint julep this weekend in at uh, Churchill <laughs> Downs. The, I don't know what it is. I know it's expensive, I, it's bourbon. Oh, uh, you can Google it. I know it's got bourbon in it. I don't like mint. So I'm going to be drinking vodka. I'm going to be drinking dirty Shirley Temples. Well, I'm not so sure that I'm, I'm down to $750 a drink either, but. <laughs> Holy. You Google it and you oh, can man. make yourself one at home. <laughs> Just spend your money on. You know, a good bourbon like Maker's Mark or um, uh, I can't remember the other one. I'm not a I'm not a brown liquor drinker. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Of course, we're getting fancy over here drinking the uh, mint julep. But uh, you know. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, if you ask Lisa, it's like a seven hundred and fifty dollar drink, but it's because it's served in some special right. glass. It's a commemorative. Yeah. Yeah. They do. The guy that I work for actually they, stood in line because his wife wanted one last year and it was their first <laughs> and only time to go. So, I mean, literally like he bought it, they ran out, but he got one. And then literally like, uh-huh. this is the affection that he has for his wife. This gentleman that's behind him offers him three grand for this drink and he turns it down because she wanted it. So, you know, kudos oh to him. But look, oh. but look babe, I'm selling the drink. If I'm selling it. I'm telling you right now, for three grand, if I can triple, quadruple my money, it's gone. I was about to say, Brian, did you turn down that offer? I mean, you know, I mean, we're probably going to separate that and divorce court after that anyway. So. <laughs> So, but, but, but yeah, I'm, just I'm, uh, like Brad, Google it. When was yeah. the uh, 
when was the anniversary? Uh, I know, I think it's coming up. Is it not, or did I? Am I a couple months off? I don't remember the the West Memphis Three anniversary. May fifth is the anniversary of the murders. May sixth is the anniversary of the day the bodies were discovered. That's what I thought because I was I was thinking about that the other day. That has it been? I'm assuming it's been two years since we we had the the the, the special show. Uh, that, uh, no, it, we had the a year in November. It was November 2017. So it's been okay. about 14, 16 months. I was going to say we had you on, and I know that's right. We didn't do we we didn't do that show, but when we had talked to you that that uh, we were going to do something in that in the regards to to. Uh, the three boys that were, were murdered in West Right, Memphis. right. Afterwards. I couldn't remember, but I knew that it had to be close. Uh, um, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm on a Game of Thrones oh, okay. right now. So if somebody, somebody gives me a spoiler, I'm going to, like, we're going to have a problem because I'm on season six. So let's, I don't watch it. Oh, my gosh. You don't I, know what you're missing. <laughs> you said the same thing. I didn't watch Walking Dead either. Now he's Walking Dead, but uh, I don't know. I got hooked on Game of Thrones, and and it, it's 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 interesting. But uh, uh, but no, I, I heard you guys talking about the Kentucky Derby, and I'm I was I'm driving uh, back to the to the house from my nephew's t-ball game, and I was like, well, I'll catch and and, and hear the show. I rarely get an opportunity to listen, but uh, I, I do like to take the opportunity. Well, thank when you. I can. Well, thank you, Brad. Hey, Brad, I gotta ask, did he win? Uh, well, you know, at three years old, they they, they like they all hit, they all run around, and and uh, I mean, he had the biggest handful of dirt, so I don't know if that counts or not. Hey, that counts for me, MVP right there. <laughs> what is it? As long as his pants weren't clean, he played well. Well, I don't think his pants were clean before the game started. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of, I mean, okay, so Uncle Brad may have thrown the ball up against the fence and found the only opening in the fence and lost it. So, you know, there was that. Oh. But no, um, <laughs> yeah, it is what it is on that one. Uncle Brad showing that athletic talent. Yeah. <laughs> the accuracy of, uh, of Stevie Wonder. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh. Well, Brad, it's definitely good to hear from you on the show here, and uh, we look forward to. Uh, I guess uh, coming up, Lisa is going to be able to provide you with the definite dates, but uh, talking here soon about some stuff uh, that we've talked about. Uh, the. Uh, there's uh, the one Mr. Terry Hobbs going to be on here and on a guest that you're going to be on here for too long. And uh, then uh, the, and I forget the exact title of it, Lisa, what was the one? Court that of we're Public gonna, Opinion. Uh, Court of Public Opinion. I look yeah, forward to having you on both of them for sure. We're, it looks like we're going to be recording that on May 25th. Which is a Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern, which will be 2 p.m. our time. Hobbs. 
going to be Terry Hobbs is going to be an interesting listen. Uh, you know, uh, I think that that uh, it'll be interesting to hear what he says. Now, I'm you know, you, I don't know the parameters of, of his of what he set out to say. You know, obviously with some of the heat that he's taken through the documentaries and and such, I'm sure he's probably. I don't know. He may not have a refined list of things that you can and can't say, but uh, I think it's going to be interesting to, to hear that um, and and get his thought process if if he you know can go back that far and, and actually recount some of what he was thinking. I think that kind of insight would be interesting to listen to because you you really never got that part of it. You know, with that case, you always got these, these three didn't do it. Uh, railroad job or. You know, Satanists still and things of that. Mark Byers did it. Well, one of the problems, Terry Hobbs was not on anybody's radar until 2007 when mitochondrial DNA didn't exclude him. I'm not going to lie to you, Lisa, and and that's the thing I told Michael uh, the other day. When it comes to at least you know the of the opinion that I had was, it, I didn't understand how, you know, they weren't on a radar. I mean, usually, and that's this is where you probably take precedence in in the information that I do. But, um, you know, I didn't understand the point of why they wouldn't be at least looked at or targeted to a degree because of their interaction with the boys and the disappearance and the, the no suspects at that point, you know, well, I mean, that would be the only thing that I would I kind think, of question was. I think a, a part of that is yes. When a child is killed, the prime suspects are a parent, but when you have three unrelated children killed, the likelihood of one parent being involved is, it's less likely that a parent was involved in killing their own child and two unrelated children. So that's first of all. Second of all, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly had the services of Ron Lax, a private investigator. He investigated John Mark Byers. He's, you see him in Paradise Lost 1 with, I think, Val Price talking about John Mark Byers and how shady he is and how he's lying about this and how he's lying about that and how, you know, he could have done it. He never looked at Terry Hobbs. He never thought anything about Terry Hobbs. Sanofsky and Berlinger didn't think anything about Terry Hobbs because they had Byers acting like a trained monkey. Jumping when yeah, they said jump. Was that was that? And I don't want to get y'all off subject, but I was going to ask you was was Byers's behavior, and that would be a question that I'd like if Terry can remember. But you know, obviously they were featured some on that documentary. Were they were they coaxed into acting that way? Because you know, I'm not going to lie, and and I've said it from day one, but. Uh, when that documentary came out, that was really bad PR for white people. I was like embarrassed to the fact that I'm from Arkansas and I'm literally these people are like, so and I was like, no, we we don't act that way. I promise you, we don't. Right. Well, we talk, do, but I mean, 
we talked about that, and that's because Berlinger and Sanofsky came down from New York, and that's what they think all Southerners are like. And so that's what they portrayed us as. (laughs) But, no, Mark Byers, I have it on good authority. Of course, Mark Byers, you know, he has been known to say what benefits him the most. Um, They were giving him drugs and alcohol, so he was happy to do whatever they wanted. If they wanted him to act crazy, he acted crazy. If they wanted him to, you know, be serious, he he was serious. And I think they did the same thing in Paradise Lost 3, only he's had that brain tumor for all these years, and, and now he's, you could see in that, that Paradise Lost 3 that he wasn't all there. No. But he said what they wanted him to say. And I mean, his wasn't didn't his wife end up ODing? Yeah, she died. It was it was she had a lot of physical problems going on. She was using drugs and taking drugs. Both of them were, and she died in her sleep. And the problem was is that the the level of drugs in her system weren't on their own enough to cause her death. And the medical examiner couldn't say what had caused her death, so he had to okay, rule it so undetermined. That's that's but that became accusations of murder against John Mark Byers. Okay. That she knew something and she was going to tell, and, you know, so he killed her. Um, and everything they said about John Mark Byers, they're now saying about Terry Hobbs, which is, for me, why they lack credibility. Because it's not based on any evidence it's based on hearsay rumor innuendo which they claim is what was wrong about the prosecution's case against Eccles Baldwin and Ms. Kelly you can't have it both ways you can't criticize a circumstantial case against someone who's been convicted and then use the same type of circumstantial evidence against your alternate suspect to claim that he's a real killer Right. Well, there was a lot of a lot of interesting things about that, and I and I do hope that at some point, and I don't know if Michael confirmed it or or not, but I really cannot wait until there's a discussion about a former guest that I had on a podcast. That to me laughable now. I mean, at first it was something that was like, mm. but like to go back and think about. I mean, this guy's the Michael Jordan the serial. And I mean, you know who I'm talking about, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're. Yeah. I mean, that was interesting, and and the book is pretty cool. And I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's a lot of like circumstantial stuff that, um, it, I don't know. Unfortunately, it's not even circumstantial. It's speculative. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I did a little bit of research on some of the cases before I started reading the book. And he I don't know where he's getting a lot of his stuff. His stuff about saying Edward Edwards was, was involved in the West Memphis 3 case, he has nothing about that case right. Nothing about the crime, nothing about the evidence, nothing at all. Didn't you tell me? 
Didn't you tell me too, Lisa? Here's one for you. Didn't you tell me too, Lisa, that that's not Ed Edwards in Paradise Lost? Well, no, I didn't say it is not him because I can't definitively say that. But uh-huh. what Cameron did is he uses a note. He claims that Edwards ingratiated himself with Doug Cooper, who was with Creative Thinking, Paradise Lost One, and that he then finagled his way onto a shot at the cemetery. He said in West Memphis, but the cemetery is actually in Memphis because Christopher was buried in Memphis. Um, and he says there's a note in the file that proves Ed Edwards ingratiated himself to Doug Cooper. Well, the note that he posted is about Doug Cooper getting a knife from John Mark Byers. has nothing whatsoever to do with Edward Edwards. Oh, wow. Zero to do with Edward Edwards. I was wondering, I thought you had something to do that. I thought you had that. It wasn't him, but definitely, I mean, it's Well, I, I, I don't think he, he doesn't have any definitive proof. I, I've read enough of his book. I'm still working on it. But I've read enough of his book. When he talks about Edwards, first of all, he did exchange some letters with the man, but the man died before he could get out to Ohio to sit down face-to-face and interview him. So that's flaw number one, because everything he says is not based on a one-on-one interview and direct admissions made to him by Edwards or direct statements made to him by Edwards. It's based on his speculation from the little nuggets in Edwards' letters and his own speculation about Edwards' character and personality and motivation, like claiming he liked to frame people. But then he links him to some of the, you know, biggest unsolved murders in history, like Zodiac and Black Dahlia. Well, why didn't he frame someone for those murders? Why would he not frame someone since he did it so well? <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's what got me was, I mean, if, 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 if you know, and that's a big if. But, I mean, if all of this is true, then, you know, not even trying to be funny, but this guy would have to be like, you know, the Tiger Woods of, of murder. And, right, I mean, and, I don't and think, the – I don't think he could be that perfect. John JonBenet Ramsey, he would have been well into his 60s. By the time he killed uh, Chris, Mark, and Steve, Mike and Steve, and JonBenet Ramsey, he would have been in his 60s. I mean, I would and there are a couple other murders in the '90s, and then in his '70s, when he supposedly killed Lacey Peterson. Wow! You know, and that's where that's where they put him. They tie him. I guess somehow they they. I guess they try to tie him in in the area at the time of the. I don't know. I mean, correct. Um, yeah, and like I said, the premise of the show that we did back then was, you know, was always that that they are bell type. I didn't. 
I didn't bring you on to ridicule you. I brought you on to hear your story and then right. No, no, no. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, I'm listening to this guy going, you know, I mean, what a waste of talent. If you're that good at doing that, I mean, you could have done so much, you know, better and more productive, you know, legal things than, than that, you know, it was just amazing to me, but, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to hijack your show. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited. We had a triple crown last year and you know, there's, there's the hope of, of a, a second year in a row where we have another triple crown horse. And so, um, am I, I was about to say my two, I've got two favorites. War of Will and Omaha Beach. They're uh, Colts by Warfront, who is a, I think, Claiborne Farms. Uh, now, was stallion. Omaha Beach the one that won the, did he, he won the Derby, correct? Uh, he won, I, you know, I don't remember. I think he won the Arkansas Derby, maybe. In the slop. Oh, and that was, you know. Now, granted, Lisa. Now, I don't know if you you're familiar with our track down here, but we have probably one of the best racing surfaces in the United States. I mean, that track goes from sloppy to fast in a matter of thirty minutes the way it drains. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, I watched that race, and um, I mean, he looked good. Uh, they all really looked good to me. I know there's going to be two or three that I think that are in now. From the Arkansas yeah. Derby, uh, but the problem that, that and I think it, 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 have they done the they, have they done the drawing yet? Yes. Uh, War of Will is post one. Omaha Beach is post twelve. That's not. I mean, were they doing a twenty twenty horse field this year? Yes. Yes. Twelve and. He likes. I think he's a kind of a mid pack to the up front. I believe. Thank. I mean, I, that's enough space to, to try to maneuver. I think right. the thing that would kill me would when I see him is anything bunched in there at six or seven or eight, where or even nine and ten, where you get in the middle and and you know mm-hmm. you're getting hung out of traffic and one bad you know trip or uh, a horse gets well, in your way and your momentum goes away. And, and I think that's another thing. Yeah, that, that, that twelve is a little is a little dicey because they bring out that second gate with thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, six. You know, or, or I don't know how many are go in it, but the horse that ends up in the number fourteen slot, which I think is the last regular gate, they get mugged by the horses yeah, in the I mean, secondary gate. And you figure too. I mean, it's all about the the shortest distance around the track, which is automatically going to be to the inside. So if, if you get hung four, five, six wide out of uh, out of the front turn, you know, you might have yeah. a struggle on your hands. So I mean, and, and the jockeys know that, and that I think there's a lot more to it that people don't realize. You yeah. know, uh, these jockeys they put them in a position, and I think one of the things too that that Michael is I don't know. Well, you'll be in Tuckerman with with me, I believe. Uh, right. Show that night, but uh, but I think one of the things that people don't realize is too when the jockey's standing up on them, you know, 
he's he's not asking him to run. It's when he sits down on him that he's telling him, you know, hey, time to move. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of positioning that your average fan doesn't see that, you know, I've been up at 4 o'clock in the morning working horses. <laughs> uh, yeah. Getting ready for the, for the race day. So, there's and- you know, there's a lot of things that, that horsemen do in there that – and they know what they want to run, and they know how that horse is going to run and how to handle them, so. Right. And Omaha Beach is being ridden by Mike Smith. Mike Smith. He is I think, one uh, of the best jockeys think, in the world. Well, He I'll won the Triple Crown last year bit. on Justify. I'll tell my age a little bit. I'm kind of a – I remember the old days, like – Pat Day and you know, and I know that's not even that old, but uh, you know, I, I think the one I'm familiar with the most right now is Calvin Burrell. Uh, yeah, yeah, Calvin's a Louisiana uh, boy. I I well, like Calvin, the Stormos as well. I think he still runs in. Uh, I think Calvin still saddles a few few horses in uh, at Oakland from time to time. I don't think he's racing full time anymore though. No, he had retired a couple years ago. And, you know, if you want to watch a good horse racing movie, since we're on the topic anyway, 50 to 1. Uh, it's the story of Mind That Bird, who won the 2009 Kentucky Derby. He was a gelding out of too. New Mexico. It's a great movie. Calvin has a cameo. Uh, well, Calvin is in the movie. He was Mind That Bird's jockey. It is a great, great movie, and it's about, you know, an underdog story. Well, well, guys, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, Michael, if you just want to put me on mute. All right, Brad. Okay, thanks, Brad. All right, that was our old friend Brad Hicks, former co-host, on a couple of prior podcasts, so it's always great talking to Brad. And I guess we could get on with Mamiya Abu Jamal, Wesley Cook. Yeah, we, we maybe get we kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit, but we definitely yes, we, we did, we did. <laughs> well, now you know what? Next year, I think what we'll do is before Kentucky Derby Preakness and Belmont, that those shows are just going to be about horse racing. <laughs> that works. <laughs> and we'll just we'll we'll talk about Brad can come on again, and we will just talk about horse racing. So there and just go, for Brad, um, final final mention, uh, Omaha Beach won the Arkansas Derby, April thirteenth. Uh, he came in first. He also won the Rebel Stakes, and. Um, then he had some maiden special weight races, which Brad will know more about what those are. And I'd like to talk to Brad about maiden special weights allowance, those different races in grade two, grade three, grade one. So we we might do that. Well, in fact, let's slate that for the Preakness. Okay. The show before let's the Preakness, it. we will talk about horse racing. Okay. Nice little special. Episode. All right. So we're we're back okay. to Mumia. Abu Jamal, Wesley Cook, uh, the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Um, uh-huh. Daniel Faulkner, as we you know, recall, he was 25 years old. He was 12 days from his 26th birthday. 
He'd been married to his wife, Maureen, for a little bit over a year. He went to work on the late evening shift Wednesday uh, or December 8th into December 9th and was shot and killed by Wesley Cook while involved in a traffic stop and altercation with Cook's brother, William. Um, Back recap a little bit on part two. We we talked about the trial. Um, I did go back and double double check, and um, they chose 16 jurors, 12 jurors and four alternates. Um, While Abu Jamal wants to complain about the prosecutor using peremptory challenges to eliminate African-American jurors. Um, From what I read in the voir dire transcripts, most of the peremptory challenges were used when he challenged for cause because Uh the jurors did not believe in the death penalty. And then Anthony Jackson, Mumia Abu-Jamal's attorney, uh, backup counsel, argued against the challenge for cause, and so that left uh, Mr. McGill needing to use a peremptory Uh to eliminate jurors who did not believe in the death penalty. Um, There were a few other qualified jurors who Mumia Abu-Jamal used peremptory challenges on, and one of those happened to be black, but the majority of them were not were white and they were from the right. lower uh you know lower middle class working people uh with names like Gallagher, Flanagan, Moran, Colada I- I'm just saying, you know, Italian and Irish names. Um okay. and uh Joseph McGill also did use a peremptory challenge on a priest. Okay. Even though the answers that he gave made him seem like a good juror, but uh, something people don't realize is sometimes you can say the right things, but if you look a little nervous, then that's going to give one attorney or the other attorney, prosecution or defense, it might give them pause, and that will lead them to use a peremptory challenge because they don't want you on your on their jury. Um, right. So anyway, and I did I did go back and reread, and the juror who broke sequestration, uh-huh. who was dismissed. Right. Excuse me. Um, she actually, the judge did mention, or Mr. McGill mentioned that what she did was contempt of court. However, they didn't follow through and charge her with contempt of court or find her in contempt, but they did dismiss her. And, of course, uh, Abu Jamal's trial tirades and tantrums and hissy fits continued, resulting in his removal from the courtroom multiple times, as well as his removal as his own counsel. Um, Right of self Self-representation is not absolute. If you can't – if you're doing it to try to delay the trial, 
prevent the trial from moving forward. Uh, if you get up when they're ready to do opening statements and argue with the judge about his last ruling, you're not going to be allowed to continue representing yourself. Okay. Absolutely and, not. Uh, that would, it had nothing to do with Mumia uh, Abu-Jamal personally. It had nothing to do with his race. It had to do with his behavior. Behavior has consequences. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, that was that was it. And then I want to go into a couple of the final statements that he made um, briefly. The first one is after he was convicted, and it was at the beginning of the penalty phase where the jury would be deciding between a life without parole sentence and a death sentence. And this is what he had to say. Today's decision comes as no surprise. In fact, many will remember that I said this would happen last week when John Africa predicted and prophesied this jury decision. I want everyone to know it came after a legal trained lawyer was imposed upon me against my will. A legal trained lawyer whose interests were clearly not my own. A legal trained lawyer named Tony Jackson, a man who knew he was inadequate to the task and chose to follow the direction of this black robe conspirator, Albert Sabo, even if it, even if it meant ignoring my directions. Um, it, this goes on for several pages, and I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, I'm going to skip to the end. It was John just Africa's influence at this <laughs> Just a bunch of words and complaints, and you know he was portraying himself as a victim. Of course. Um, it was it was John Africa's influence that this court feared and his assistance that this court resisted and denied, as if it were fa- unfair to have him help me fight for my life. It is his protection that remains despite this court's resistance and opinion. On December 9, 1981, the police attempted to execute me in the street. This trial is a result of their failure to do so. Just as police tried to kill me, kill my brothers and sisters of the family Africa on August 8, 1978, they failed, and hence a so-called trial was conducted to complete the execution. But long live John Africa for our continued survival. This decision proves neither my guilt nor my innocence. It proves merely that the system is finished. Babylon is falling. Long live move. Long live John Africa. Let me roll my And Yeah, in spite of all this, Mr. Jackson, uh, he did his best, uh, you know, he tried to still, he, he argued for Abu Jamal's life. He tried right. to save his life. But, you know, the tirades and the, not even, not even the ejection from the courtroom, but just the tirades before the jury and the contempt he showed for the judge, he wouldn't rise when the judge and jury came in. He swore at them. He cursed at them. Um, you know, and and people say he wasn't trying to disrupt the trial. He was, you know, he was mad. He was fighting for his rights. What the way he was fighting for them wasn't working. Yeah, you think? He, and you the problem was he wasn't being denied any rights. He had a hell of a lot more rights than Daniel Faulkner had. So, and then his final statement 
uh, after he was sentenced, the jury found, you know, aggravating and mitigating, one aggravating, one mitigating circumstance, found the mitigating did not weigh the aggravating and sentenced him to death. He says, long live John Africa. I'm going to tell you one thing. You have sentenced yourself just like Judge Malmed, just like Malcolm, just like Myrna Marshall, and every judge who dares to sit up there and act like you got some justice. You are wrong. You have just been sentenced to death. You have just been convicted. Uh, He goes on. He calls uh, Mr. Jackson a baboon and a shyster. And then his final words, because, of course, he had to have the last word. He can do as good as he has done. Nothing. Long live John Africa. On the move. Fuck you, Judge. Fuck you. So that was, um, yeah, that, and that's his idea of trying to get it, to, trying to fight for his rights. And I think that's where you see, you know, the problem with. Uh, I mean, if you're a reasonable person, you see the problem. Pardon? Yeah. This dude just ceases I to couldn't amaze hear. me the way. I, I, yeah, it kind of, um, it, it kind of boggles my mind too. And, and the funny thing is, is that, uh, you know, to this day, he and his advocates say he wasn't doing anything wrong. He had a right to act like that. He had a right to talk like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. I um, we'll we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, I certainly don't agree. Um, and you know, unfortunately, for him and for his advocates. Um, the courts are not going to find his behavior acceptable. Right. Absolutely not. And so, I mean, in a way where he wants to believe that Judge Sabo, Judge uh, Mr. McGill, and Mr. Jackson all sabotage his case, he's really the one that sabotaged his own case. Yeah. If if he had been able to let Tony Jackson direct the case and strategy, he might have ended up with a manslaughter conviction. Because Jackson did question the witnesses and he pointed out every single little discrepancy and inconsistency. In their statements, they gave they all gave multiple statements, and he challenged every single one of them. And if Jamal and had been able to sit there and be quiet, right, the jurors might have seen him as a peaceful man who saw his brother being struck by a police officer and lost it. And, and I think that's what Jackson was going this, for. Yeah. But his behavior, like, but but Abdul Jamal just can't keep his mouth shut. Right, 
and you know the jurors see that and they see the contempt for the court and it's it's hard not to imagine them seeing that contempt for the court and transferring that contempt to Daniel Faulkner. Right. And believing the eyewitnesses and, you know, even his his behavior in the court makes the whole confession at Jefferson Hospital or admission at Jefferson Hospital more believable because in court sometimes he would just stand up and start demanding things and and when he didn't get his way, he would start cursing the judge out and have to be evicted or removed. Wow. So, but, uh, so he was convicted and, and sentenced to death. His sentencing actually didn't play, take place. Uh, the jury recommended death. And then there was about, it was in June, July of 82, but in May of 83 is when he actually went before Judge Sabo for the sentencing. Right. And um, they did, you know, a pre-sentence report, which Abu Jamal wouldn't uh, wouldn't cooperate with. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time, if I'm not mistaken, in... It, during that era, death sentences were recommended by a jury, but a judge could actually show leniency and sentence somebody to life in prison right. rather than death. Is that the way it is now? It, it, no. In, in um, I think the late 1980s, so the states where I think I know Florida, it was only a, the jury's verdict was only a recommendation, and a judge right, could either take the recommendation or sentence somebody or lessen lesser sentence. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know if that was if Pennsylvania was one of those states. In Texas and oh. in Louisiana, and in a couple of other states. No, the jury sentence was a jury sentence, and the judge had no no leeway. But in some other states, I think Arizona, Florida, the judge actually had some leeway. I don't know if that's the case in Pennsylvania. Okay. But, you know, again, he he basically, he sabotaged his own case. And, you know, I'm just going to, put that out there from the outset. He sabotaged his own case because the record of his case follows him in every appeal, every post-conviction claim, and he can paint it any way he wants in his briefs and his petitions, but the appellate court's are going to see the real Wesley Cook when they read the record and the transcripts. Right. So um, he filed a direct appeal with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, or it was actually automatic, 
uh, with a death sentence. And the issues that he raised were that the prosecutor excluded jurors based on race, that um, Abu Jamal challenged a potential alternate juror for cause, and the judge erred in not granting that challenge. Um, He also alleged that the trial court questioning the veneer uh, during voir dire, which is actually French, um, and I I forgot what it means, but it's actually French, not Latin, uh, that that was improper, that uh, the prosecutor prosecutor's cross-examination of some of his character witnesses was improper, that the prosecutor made an improper closing argument, that he should have been, that Jamal should have been allowed to uh, allocute at his sentencing penalty phase and not be cross-examined during the penalty phase, that Uh killing a police officer is an invalid aggravating circumstance, that he had ineffective assistance at trial and on appeal. And then, of course, and back in those days, the Supreme Courts of the various states where death penalty was a a, a sentence, they did uh-huh. a proportionality review of your case and other cases to determine whether the death penalty was in proportion with what you did Your crime Yeah And I don't think they do it anymore um, But this was after the death penalty Had been reinstated uh, With Greg versus Georgia So states were Putting in measures to, to try to Ensure that the problems With the death penalty uh, From pre-Furman Were not still there issues. Right. issues, yeah. Um, on the first issue, the exclusion of jurors based on race, the Supreme Court examined the record and found that that was not supported by the record. That claim was not supported by the record. Um, they didn't have a lot of information about the entire panel. And they examined, I think, 157 jurors. Right. 157 prospective jurors. So they had three panels of people come in over those six days. Or four panels because uh, they had to pick the alternate. So it was 157 people. They didn't know and... Abu Jamal didn't provide them any evidence of the racial makeup of those 157 people. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the arguments was while, you know, Philadelphia is 40% African American, well, you know, that's true within the city of Philadelphia, but the jurors would have come from Philadelphia County, not right. just the city of Philadelphia. And so there are a lot of outlying suburbs within Philadelphia County. 
Absolutely. That would would kind of um, again, you know, the the makeup of that hundred all hundred and fifty seven people. And then on the record, there were only a few instances where uh, Mr. Jackson put the race of jurors on the record either during questioning or when a peremptory challenge was used. Uh And I will admit there are a couple of jurors that Mr. McGill used peremptory challenges who, from what I read of their answers, seem like perfectly qualified jurors. But again, mm-hmm. you have the cold record, and I wasn't there to observe them as they answered the questions. And so their facial right. expression, body language, e- even if they just looked at Jamal nervously during the course of Wadir. Um, and there were a couple, you know, like there was a police, a woman who's, um, or a man whose son was a police officer who had been shot and uh, it was McGill who challenged him for cause uh-huh. rather than Abu Jamal. Uh, that was pretty strange. That was strange. But I think also one of the, one of the problems is that during the course of the, proceedings, hearings, as well as Wadir, as well as the trial, there were times when Abu Jamal would tell Anthony Jackson to just sit down and shut up and not do anything. Because he felt if he didn't cooperate, he if he felt if he cooperated, he was uh, legitimizing the process. Right. And so, in his mind, if he didn't cooperate, they couldn't do anything, which is totally wrong. Um, they they'll they'll move on without your cooperation. So um, so they they found that that claim didn't la- that that claim lacked merit. Um, the the issue with the alternate juror that he challenged for cause, they found that there was no abuse of discretion, that while initial questioning there were some problems, it was clear from the record that the juror in the initial questioning didn't quite understand the questions that Mr. Jackson was asking him. And that when he was questioned by Mr. McGill, he understood the questions and was able to, you know, show that he was qualified to serve as an alternate. Um, they also found that the trial court didn't abuse its discretion in taking over Wadir on the third day, which was really only for a half a day, because after the lunch break, Abu Jamal changed his mind and decided he'd let Jackson question potential jurors. Um, the court also did not find any merit in the complaints about the cross-examination of the character witnesses. Um, 
you know, they, I think they kind of felt that one was a little odd because all witnesses, when you put them on the stand, are subject to cross-examination. That's the point of trial. And to think that he would be allowed to put witnesses up who couldn't be cross-examined was odd. Right. And they also they examined the prosecutor's closing arguments. I, I think there was a, a complaint on uh, the guilt-innocence phase as well as the penalty phase, but they examined the prosecutor's argument within the context of the entire argument and found that he where he may have said things that were close to the line of improper they were a reasonable response to argument made by the defense right and so, you know, they weren't objectionable. And again, they weren't objectionable within context of the complete argument. Uh, and this is something that we'll see going forward in the uh, in some of the, the post-conviction. Abu Jamal, his advocates, his supporters, his attorneys tend to take a phrase or a sentence from a statement or testimony and they tend to then ignore the context of that statement or what came before or after that statement and portray that statement as meaning something totally different. Right. Um which we saw in the motion to suppress where they claim that because there were discrepancies between the statements Cynthia White and Robert Schobert gave about the description of the person they saw uh, and where the persons were standing, where Officer Faulkner was, where William Cook was, where they were, that that, that means their statements are all totally untrue. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it works. <laughs> so... Um, and they also, uh, they found that, um, the prosecutor had every right to cross-examine Jamal during the penalty phase that while allocution is a common law principle, um, in the context of a penalty phase at a murder trial, it is not, it actually would have been abuse of discretion for the judge to allow him to make a statement and not be subject to cross-examination. Uh, They also found that the murder of uh, the death of a police, killing of a police officer, is not an invalid aggravating circumstance. Um, They found that his trial counsel, Mr. Jackson, was not ineffective at trial because when Mumia Abu Jamal was representing himself, Mr. Jackson had turned everything over to him. Statements witness list, witness names, everything. Well, when Judge Sabo removed Abu Jamal as his own counsel, Abu Jamal refused to return any of that to Mr. Jackson. And they also found that uh, 
Abu Jamal was the one who was directing trial strategy. Right. And therefore, he can't complain about ineffective assistance of counsel when his counsel was following his his orders. Right. And um, he filed a brief – Abu Jamal filed a pro se brief alleging uh, ineffective assistance of appellate counsel for failing to raise certain issues, but the, the appellate court didn't even really say that much about that um, because attorneys have a duty they, – they, they don't have a duty to raise every single issue that their client believes is an issue. Right. You know, the judge's tie was brown on the first day of my trial. That's racism. Well, an attorney doesn't have to raise that issue if they don't yeah, feel that it has merit. And in some states, they actually the, – the ethical canons uh, prevent them from just throwing it at the wall and seeing if it sticks. They have to have a good faith basis, and the claims have to be meritorious. Uh-huh. Or they can get in trouble with the appellate court or trial court. Right. So, um, and the, the disciplinary boards. So, um, his direct appeal, his conviction and sentence were both affirmed and he began serving his time on, uh, Pennsylvania's death row. Okay. They also found the death penalty so, was appropriate punishment on their proportionality review. Right. That, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, do you want to take a break tonight, or you just want to power through? What We're do you What do you vote? So we can make up that time. Okay. Perfect. All right, so uh, Abu Jamal's appeal, direct appeal, was decided on March 6, 1989, and then nothing happened for several years until June of 1995 when uh, the governor of Pennsylvania uh, signed a death warrant for Abu Jamal, setting his execution date for August 17th. 1995. Mm-hmm. At that time, under Pennsylvania's Post-Conviction Relief Act, there was no time limit for filing a post-conviction relief claim. Mm-hmm. And so in July, I believe, uh, Jamal's new attorneys filed a uh, Post-Conviction Relief Act petition with the trial court and a motion for stay of execution. They also requested hearings. And uh, contrary to what the supporters of Abu Jamal believe, it was not public pressure or uh, phone calls or faxes to Judge Sabo 
that led to a stay. It was the fact that the petition did raise meritorious claims. There was a need for hearings, and those hearings could not be completed. So Judge Sabo granted a stay of execution on, I think it was August 7th, 1995. So the stay was just issued just because he wanted to hear every everything he needed to hear. Correct. Cor- the stay was issued because the claims that Abu Jamal raised, he, he had a right under the post-conviction class. I mean, you know, this is, again, this is a judge that Jamal claims has been working to kill him since 1982, and yet when he could have summarily denied the PCRA petition without hearings or anything, he didn't do that. He granted the stay of execution. He set the hearings. Of course, by that time, um, Abu Jamal was being represented by a gentleman by the name of Leonard Wineglass and another one Mm -hmm. by the name of Daniel Williams. And I mm-hmm. believe a woman by the name of Rachel Wolkerstein was in there as well. Um, Mr. Wineglass was something of a showboater. God rest his soul, because he, he passed away, uh, I think, in about 2014 or 2015, or maybe later than that. Um, but he was a showboater. So he's, he's somebody who started... Um, a lot of publicity for right. Rami Abu-Jamal. And I think he saw a money-making opportunity because uh-huh. uh, the money the money was still rolling in to the Legal Defense Fund. Right. And he did disclose when asked several times uh, that he was being paid, but he would not disclose what he was being paid or how much uh-huh. he was being paid. Um, now, remember, Abu Jamal had been declared indigent. Okay. So his attorneys and experts were going to be paid by the state of Pennsylvania or the county of Philadelphia. Um, and there was a legal defense fund even prior to his trial, but um, – they apparently didn't pay for much because he complained about lack of funding for experts. Uh, and just to, to to get that one out of the way, no state or county in any jurisdiction in the United States is going to give a defense attorney a blank check to do whatever he wants. And say, hey, go spend some money. There is a budget, and usually most states have a statutory limit. In 1982, in Philadelphia County, for the Common Police Court, it was $150 per expert. However... There have always been procedures 
by which an attorney could get more funds. They could use that initial 150 as a retainer and then have the expert submit interim bills. For example, submit a bill when that 150 is exhausted. Uh-huh. And if you submit the bill, the judge can approve it for, for payment, and the expert won't have to wait until the conclusion of the case to be paid. Uh-huh. And I think we talked a bit about this a little bit with the West Memphis Three. They complained about a lack of funding, but the attorneys, you can go to the court and ask for additional funding. If you have an expert who wants you know, a $1,500 retainer and the, the budget is 1000 you can go to the judge and say, can I get $500 more to pay this retainer? Right, and you know the judge. It's reasonable the judge will grant it. Um, now you know you can't go to him and say, "Well, I want John Douglas, and he charges twelve thousand dollars just to look at the case." Well, then you're going to be SOL, but you would be that in any state in any jurisdiction. Right, because they're be- not going to give you twelve thousand dollars for John Douglas. Right. Um. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, there's some inequity because O.J. Simpson can pay $12,000 for John Douglas. Well, uh, what is it? Spectre, Phil Spectre. He could pay $10,000 for Michael Bodden and 10000 for Henry Lee, no problem. Of course, he's in prison now, and he ain't got no money left. Right. So, um, but... You know, that's just not – it's not – when the state has to pay your legal bills, unfortunately, they don't you're not have unlimited that. funds, and right. you're not going to get – now, I think uh, some states have even raised the, the budget now. They may be as high as $2,000 or $2,500, and that's a decent uh-huh. retainer. I mean, I work – in the civil field with experts. And, I mean, I, we've paid $2,500 retainers and gotten a couple hundred bucks back after the expert submits his report. Uh-huh. Because they haven't exhausted our retainer. Um, and, once they, and if they do exhaust the retainer, they send us interim bills. For you know their their time on the case, and we pay them. It's not right. that, you know it's not right. that difficult. <laughs> no, not so, uh, but the you know like I said, the idea that the state has a duty to give a defense attorney a blank check is just delusional you know it's it's not going to happen it's never going to happen apparently they think that the uh, government has unlimited funds correct a lot of people do think that they have unlimited funds Um, that is not the case (laughs) Um, 
most courts operate within a budget. Police departments operate within a budget. Crime labs operate within a budget. Um, if they use up the budget, then they just don't do things or get things that they need until the next fiscal year begins and the new budget comes out. And I I think that might be an interesting topic to talk to Commander Gernon about. Uh Because he has been in charge of the 8th District, which is the French Quarter, one of the busiest districts in the city of New Orleans, and one of the most high-profile districts. He's run the uh, NOPD Mounted Program, and now he's uh, commander of the crime lab. So that might be an interesting topic for him to talk about. True. How it works in the real world. <laughs> um, so the there were a lot of issues raised by Abu Jamal on uh, – PCRA, uh, one of the first things was he wanted Judge Sabo to recuse himself. Now, interestingly, Judge Sabo was slated for mandatory retirement in 1990, but he and several other judges who were all slated for mandatory retirement challenged that policy in federal court. And it was deemed unconstitutional. So they were all allowed to continue uh, as judges in the Commonwealth uh, Court of Common Pleas after 1990 when they were supposed to have been mandatory mandatory retirement. Um, I think he partially retired in 1993. Uh Uh-huh. I think scaled back. Um, he had been on the Court of Common Police because of the the size of Philadelphia and alone the city of Philadelphia as well as the county itself. He had been in a homicide section. So apparently uh, they didn't try civil cases. They tried homicide cases exclusively and this was probably because the volume of homicides in Philadelphia Philadelphia County was such that to keep them within the constitutional speedy trial bounds they needed specialized you know not specialized courts but you know courts that could handle all the pretrial and all the trials without other criminal cases or civil cases on the dockets as well. Um, And that's one of the toughest jobs for judges is managing the docket and keeping cases moving, whether they're civil, criminal, uh, felony, misdemeanor, whatever. And so when you have a big jurisdiction, you'll have sometimes uh, you'll have specialized drug courts, specialized homicide courts to keep those cases moving because under the U.S. Constitution, all defendants are entitled to speedy trial. And that's usually nine months to one year 
after being charged with a crime. And that's why Abu Jamal's trial began in June of 1983 rather than going until into 19, uh, 1982, rather than going into 1983 or into 1984 because of the speedy trial requirement. Um, of course, his advocates will portray that as everybody's in a rush to kill him, but it's actually, you know, he was entitled to that trial in that now if he wanted to continue and had good grounds to continue that's fine but then he's got to waive those speedy trial requirements and say Uh he understands he's entitled to a speedy trial but he's going to waive it so that whatever he thinks needs to be done can be done Um, I don't know whether that was even an option uh the only time he really tried to continue the trial after jury selection concluded, he objected to the trial starting the next day. He wanted to wait and start it the following Monday. But that hmm. was outside the speedy trial uh, parameter, so the judge did not – and he didn't state a reason why. He just says, I don't want to start. I want to start Monday. Um but his grounds for recusal of Judge Sabo, who was brought back to oversee the hearings on the PCRA petition, was that uh, Judge Sabo had ruled against him, and those rulings uh, basically meant he was biased against Abu Jamal. Of course it is. Um, unfortunately for Abu Jamal, that it, that does not rise to the level of actual bias. Um, and as I said, I think I talked about it last week and talk about it again. There were many, many times when both Joseph McGill, the prosecutor, and Judge Sabo were looking out for Abu Jamal's interests when Abu, Jam- Abu Jamal was not. Uh-huh. When Abu Jamal launched into a tirade, Mr. McGill would go up and say, I think we need to get the jury out of here now. And the judge would remove the jury so that the jurors would not see the entirety of the tirade or see Abu Jamal eventually being removed from the courtroom. Right. And, you know, it was Joseph McGill who challenge the jurors who expressed fear of Abu Jamal uh-huh. during voir dire or who were nervous. And I believe there was one that Mr. Jackson said was even acceptable. Even though the juror said something along the lines, I'm scared to death of him. So um, the uh, Judge Sabo denied, and the uh, appellate court affirmed. They found that Judge Sabo, and just to kind of go, it's not a tangent. In most states, in post-conviction claims, the judge that hears the post-conviction claims is the original trial judge if he, he or she is still on the bench. 
that is the norm. I know there was a lot of complaints with the West Memphis Three about Judge Burnett. Right. But that is the norm. There are some states, like I think in California, uh, post-conviction does go to a different judge. But that's California law. Not, you know, that doesn't mean it's not right or wrong, and it's not right or wrong in Pennsylvania or Arkansas or Louisiana for the original trial judge because they're the ones who are most familiar with the case. Right. If you have a if you have to have a new judge come in, post conviction can take up to a year longer because that judge is gonna to have to review the entire trial record. Mm-hmm. So um but uh so he was brought back and in nineteen ninety five he eventually did retire in 1997, uh, which by that time he was 77 years old, and was finally ready to retire. So we'll talk about next week when we talk about the uh, the rhetoric and the claims. We'll talk a little bit about some of the claims being made about Judge Sabo. So, um, and then there was an issue toward the end of the trial on the last day of the defense case. Uh, Jackson, on behalf of Jamal, requested that a witness, Gary Walkshaw, who was a police officer at the hospital when, um, Abu Jamal was in Jefferson Hospital, who had given a statement that he'd heard Abu Jamal admit to killing Daniel Faulkner, but like Gary Bell, had not mentioned that statement in his initial interviews with uh, police, with homicide detectives. And he had authored a report he was guarding Abu Jamal at one point and said that he didn't say anything in that report. However, the report did not deal with the period in the entryway of the ER, which is where the statement was made. It dealt with, uh, I believe, when he was in, when Abu Jamal was in the treatment room being treated by the doctors. Right. That was what that report dealt with, and he guarded Abu Jamal for some period of time. Um, The appellate court did not find, uh, Judge Sabo basically didn't find any error uh, that they had basically waited too late. They could have requested prior to the defense case saying, we want to call Gary Walkshaw, and then arrangements could have been made. A subpoena could have been issued for Walkshaw to appear, and um, they didn't do that. They waited, and then they said, hey, we need a continuance. We're going to call Gary Walkshaw. And the judge was like, no. <laughs> and by the time they just, they made that decision, Walkshaw was on vacation and had left town. 
He had Uh been available during the early part of the trial, and he had actually been available, I think, on the first day of the defense case. But by the time, I think that was on like the 1st of July, he had he had left town by that time. So, uh, and then they made false testimony claims. They, one of the common themes is that the police made Cynthia White and Robert Schaubert or Schaubert give false testimony. That White and Schaubert didn't see anything, didn't know anything, and that police plucked them off the street and said, you're going to say Abu Jamal shot Faulkner. Uh-huh. Uh, at the hearing, they the proof that they offered was nothing more than speculation. They uh, One of the things they said is that a private investigator for Abu Jamal went to the corner, I think at 13th or around 13th and Locust, and saw a red car with two people in it. And he presumed that the people in the car were undercover police officers who were guarding Cynthia White while she worked as a prostitute. Right. It's like, okay, the court's not going to assume that two people in a car in Philadelphia are undercover agents guarding a prostitute while she does her – while she plies her trade. Um, it's not reasonable. And then Schaubert, they argued that because he was on probation for a an arson case and he was driving a cab without a license because his license had been suspended after two drunk driving incidents, that he was in danger of having his probation revoked, and therefore he was willing to say whatever police wanted him to say, um, and that one didn't fly either. That's just speculation. Um, and then they made Brady violations regarding um, two witnesses who did testify, Desi Hightower and Veronica Jones, and then uh, Brady violations regarding Gary Wachshall, a man by the name of Arnold Howard, a woman, Deborah Kordansky, and William Singletary. All of them had given statements to Philadelphia PD. And those statements were deemed by Mr. Wineglass as being highly exculpatory. And since they didn't testify at trial, of course, the prosecution hid them from the defense. Uh, once oh, again, the, the Hightower, uh, Hightower claimed that he took a polygraph and the examiner told him that he passed. And the defense apparently was not told that he had taken a polygraph and passed, or claimed they weren't told he'd taken a polygraph and passed. Unfortunately, the examiner came in with his reports and paperwork, and he testified that Hightower did take the polygraph, but he didn't pass. He was deceptive on a question as to whether or not Abu Jamal had a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, so that claim didn't work. Veronica Jones, she claimed that the police tried to pressure her 
to falsely testify against Abu Jamal and that she then got pressured prior to trial to change her trial testimony. As I recall, she did testify at trial that police tried to pressure her to uh, say Abu Jamal shot Officer Faulkner. However, when she testified at trial, she said she didn't see anything. She was over on 12th Street, and she heard the gunfire, and by the time she walked to the corner, police were there. So she didn't see the initial stages of what went down. She saw the aftermath. Um, and she testified that, um, you know, she testified to, to the pressure by police and all these things and that recanted her trial testimony. Recanting witnesses are generally not popular in appellate proceedings. Um, Even though it would seem like someone saying, I committed perjury at trial, would be a slam dunk, it isn't necessarily. Um, And with Veronica Jones, because of where she was, she she couldn't have seen everything. So what she offered after police were already at the scene is not exculpatory as to Abu Jamal. Right. Uh, Walkshaw, we talked about a little bit already. Um, Arnold Howard, in Daniel Faulkner's pocket, either of his shirt or his pants, I've seen references to each. There was a either a temporary license, which was just the paper with the name, address, and license number on it, and it didn't have a picture or anything, or an application for a duplicate license. And I've seen it described as both in different sources. Uh, That was found on Officer Faulkner in a pocket. Um, Police went to Arnold Howard. He came down to the station in 1981 He was there for two hours. The statement he gave was essentially that he didn't know anything about the murder. He was not at 13th and Locust. And the last time he saw that license or application was when Billy Cook gave him a ride on November 30th, and he lost it in Billy Cook's car. Right. Um, When he testified in 1995... He had a new story. Basically, he testified that he had given the license to his buddy, Kenneth Freeman. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, Arnold Howard is a friend of the, Coop, of the Cook family. He knows the Cook boys. Kenneth Freeman is a friend of the Cook family, and he knows William Cook because they're partners in their little newsstand or whatever it is that they, they ran in that part of town. Um, so William Cook and Wesley Cook both would have known if Kenneth Freeman was at the scene on December uh-huh. 9, 1981. Okay. Right. 
So they didn't need Arnold Howard to tell them that. But Arnold Howard said, yeah, I loaned it to uh, Kenny Freeman. And Kenny Freeman said he's the one who shot the cop. And he would have had to say that to Howard before 1985 because apparently Kenny Freeman met an untimely death in 1985. But it's 10 years later that Arnold Howard comes forward and says, yeah, you know, Kenny Freeman's the one who shot the cop. Right. Um, And Howard had some wild story about being held for 72 hours taken to the police station in handcuffs, put in a lineup with Kenny Freeman, a black girl picking them out or picking Freeman out of the lineup. And, um, I mean, he had a wild, wild tale. Again, unfortunately, there was documentation and there were witnesses. The detective who interviewed Howard brought his original statement which he was confronted with on cross-examination. And mm-hmm. it was pointed out that statement doesn't mention you giving it, giving anything to Kenneth Freeman. Doesn't mention Kenneth Freeman's right. name. Um, and the sign-in book for the station, or the, the I think it was the administration building, was also brought in, and Arnold Howard signed in at 12.30 p.m., on December 9th, and signed out at 2.30 p.m. People who are brought in in handcuffs do not sign the book. Okay. So that basically uh, refuted Howard's claim that he was held incognito for 72 hours. Um, They didn't have lineup facility at that administration building, so there could have been no lineup, and I don't think they had any record of Kenneth Freeman being brought in on the case in any way, shape, or form. I haven't seen any reference to it. Mm-hmm. So Howard's testimony uh, again, it did not, it did not work. Uh, a witness by the name of Deborah Kordansky had originally given a statement that she heard the gunfire, thought it was firecrackers, but when she started hearing sirens, she looked out the window and she saw people running toward the 13th and Locust, the corner of 13th and Locust. Um, Of course, Mr. Wineglass changed that to running away from 13th and Locust, Um, but one of the problems is that in the motion to suppress, one of the witnesses that Abu Jamal wanted to call was Deborah Kordansky. Uh-huh. Which shows he knew about Deborah Kordansky. Right. The second problem is that during the prior to the trial, during the trial, Anthony Jackson reached out to Miss Kordansky. And she apparently was not very cooperative. But she's not under a duty to cooperate. And so they elected not to call her as a witness. Uh So 
you can't have a Brady violation for a witness, A, that Abu Jamal mentions by name at a pretrial hearing. Right. And B, who his defense attorney called to try and get her to testify at the trial. So that one didn't work. And then the final one is a guy by the name of William Singletary. He owned, I think, a gas station, a service station, and drove a tow truck. And he had some wild stories about helicopters and seeing um, Abu Jamal being beaten and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, But his initial statements in 1991 were he didn't see anything, he didn't know anything. And he claimed – he also claimed to have seen people running from the scene prior to the arrival of police. But his testimony, likewise, was not found to be credible. Right. And then uh, in the – an uh, ineffective assistance counsel at trial and penalty phase, uh, basically that didn't fly because even when he was no longer representing himself, Abu Jamal was still directing the trial strategy. And Anthony Jackson was following that direction. So he can't claim ineffective assistance when he's the one, it was his strategy that failed. Well, of course he wants Uh, to be able to, though. (laughs) Correct. Correct. And I'm sure someday we'll see, you know, Anthony Jackson shouldn't have listened to him. But um, the uh, there are some allegations about Mr. Jackson, but we'll go into those next week as well. Because that's the you know that's the conclusory allegations and rhetoric that have never seen the inside of a courtroom. Uh, then they complained about the lack of funding, but it's very clear, you know, Anthony Jackson was not the uh, inexperienced uh, attorney that Abu Jamal and his supporters want to make him out to be. I think we talked about this when we talked about. Mumia Abu-Jamal picking Anthony Jackson to be appointed Uh to represent them. He had handled about 20 capital murder cases during his career. He had, I believe, lost only six of those, which only six of 20 resulted in a conviction. And only one resulted in a death sentence. True. So um, this was not his first capital murder. You know, this was not his first capital murder rodeo. Uh, He'd been on the horse before. Um, so he would have known how to obtain other money for experts. And I think, again, Abu Jamal's strategy was trying to create error. So instead of letting Jackson do what needed to be done to secure the additional funding, Abu Jamal just had him go to the judge and continue to say, Judge, I need more money. I need more money. I, I want to hire a, 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 a forensic pathologist. And 
they won't look at a case for $150. I need more money. And the judge is like, okay, well, ask them how much it'll be, submit a motion, and I'll look at it and I'll rule on it. And it's just like the legal runners. And the other thing I, I thought of with the legal runners, another reason to have the legal runners appointed was perhaps that then their conversations could not be monitored. Right. When they visited him in the prison. So, you know, that would have been maybe a way of getting around whatever monitoring may or may not have been in place. Um, probably phone calls and things like that were recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that just—I that, just wanted to, you know, straighten that out because I thought it was to try and get them to submit bills and be paid, but also it could be to get unmonitored visits with those individuals. And uh, Mr. McGill and Mr. Jackson, during the course of the trial, were receiving. Uh, harassing phone calls and things like that and I think Mr. Jackson was late for court one day because somebody called in a false fire report to his house so um, and that wasn't Maureen Faulkner and the FOP doing that right so uh, then they, they also claimed to have new witnesses a guy by the name of Harmon William Harmon, who claimed to have seen the shooting and somebody else shoot Officer Faulkner. Uh, He was not found to be credible. Uh, I think he also claimed that he was actually talking to Abu Jamal across the street when Faulkner was shot. But again, Abu Jamal would not need police to tell tell him about Harmon. Because he knew Harmon, who was a pimp, and he could have told Jackson, hey, I was talking to Harmon when this happened. Um, And then a woman by the name of Smith, who was staying in a hotel and who saw police beating a man with dreadlocks. But her description of the beating... That or what she witnessed was not consistent with the injuries that Abu Jamal had. Um, they did they did run him into a pole, which was right near where he had collapsed on the sidewalk. Um, and he fell at one point. He was also struggling with the officers, so you know that could have been partially his fault. Uh, but his injuries were not consistent with what she described. And she waited, uh, what, 14, 13, 14 years to reach out to the defense and, you know, tell them what she'd witnessed. And then a woman by the name of Pamela Jenkins, who was supposed to testify about uh, Cynthia White perjuring her testimony. Again, right. she wasn't found to be uh, credible. And, this is another thing that we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, 
you know, if you if you have these witnesses that come out of the woodwork 10, 15, 20 years later, they have to be credible. And if they're not credible, it doesn't matter what they say. It's not going to fly in court. They have to have credibility. And if they don't, and one of the reasons for Harmon's credibility is his failure to come forward for nearly 20 years. And there was an interesting comment by Judge Sabo in his opinion. He said, you know, he said he promised his mother he just wouldn't get involved, but I don't understand how he can claim to have so much respect for his mother when he sold drugs, committed fraud, theft, and assorted other crimes out of her house while he lived with her. And um, so, yeah, they they weren't credible. Their testimony wasn't credible. Uh, he complained about denying being denied the right to self representation and counsel of his choice in a non lawyer, John Africa. Uh, Judge uh-huh. Sabo found that the law does not permit you to choose a non lawyer to represent you in a criminal case, no matter how talented you may believe that person to be. Um, as much as I know, I couldn't represent, I could represent myself, but I could not represent someone else facing criminal charges because I'm not a lawyer. Right, makes sense. You know, and and his denial of self-representation He's only ha- he only has himself to blame. If he had been able to conduct himself a little more reasonably, Judge Sabo would not have taken that right away from him. But it's not absolute. If you act up and you disrupt the proceedings, even if you don't believe that's what you're doing, even if you believe you have a right to do what you're doing, you're wrong, and you're disrupting the proceedings. Um, right. And he complained about being not being uh, present at two conferences and being removed from the courtroom. But again, his his tirades were actually prejudicing the jury against him, or had the you know the potential to prejudice the jury against him. And again, I think that's, I think he was trying to create error. And so, you know, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted the whole trial to stop and start all over again. And he would have kept it going as long as he could, if he'd been allowed to do it. Um, He also complained about statements made during uh, the prosecution's summation on, during the penalty phase, uh, Again, taken in context, nothing the prosecutor said was uh, improper. They argued that there was another case with Joseph McGill that was reversed based on similar comments. But Judge Sabo examined the context of those comments and the context of the ones at Abu Jamal's trial and found they were not the same. Um, and so that 
was not successful. Uh, they claimed that Judge Sabo engineered the dismissal of the juror with the sick cat, um, but Anthony Jackson, uh, you know, consented to her being removed because she'd broken sequestration because she had been a little hostile toward Abu Jamal from the beginning and because her attitude was nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I got to do. And you just don't want a juror like that. That can screw your whole trial. Um, and jury discrimination on voir dire, they've, they've raised the, the race racial uh, issue multiple times, but at the hearings, they did not call Mr. McGill to question him regarding the jury peremptory challenges that he used and why he used them. And to give him, uh-huh. him an opportunity, Batson didn't exist, but there were existing cases that basically if the defense thought the prosecutor was using peremptory strikes against veneer members based on race, you make an objection, you say you think it's based on race, and then the prosecutor has an opportunity to give a non-discriminatory reason, such as he said he doesn't believe in the death penalty. He says he could not impose the death penalty on anyone. He said he can't sit in judgment of anyone. You know, he's Amish. Huh. They don't judge people. Right. Um, and and so that there's not and that you know the way to prove if that really happened, the way to prove it is call Joseph McGill and say you struck this one why, and let him testify under oath as to why he struck the jurors. Why did you strike the priest? Uh-huh. Because when he answered the questions, he said all the right things, but he was twitchy. <laughs> you know, or between every you know between every question, there was a long pause. Um, and then they they argued uh, that there were errors with the penalty phase jury slip, which did not give clear instruction as to how to. Uh, do aggravating and mitigating circumstances in order to reach a a verdict on penalty. Um, They also um, complained about the homicide court, uh, and that was found not only by Judge Sabo, but by the Philadelphia uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court to be well within Pennsylvania law. Um, they complained that the jury was not instructed that life meant life without parole, and Pennsylvania does not follow did not follow Simmons versus South Carolina, so you don't have to instruct a jury that life means life without parole. And then they also allege cumulative error. However, since none of the errors had any merit, uh-huh. there was no cumulative error. So that was the uh, the post-conviction in 1995, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court affirmed 
the post-conviction and analyzed Judge Sabo's uh, decision and expanded on it, but they found no error in the 1995 post-conviction. Then uh, a second execution date was set for December 2nd, 1999. That date was stayed when Abu Jamal went to federal court for his federal habeas claims. Now, I know we usually go chronologically with these cases. However, I thought that it would be better to look at all the state post-conviction as one unit before moving on to the federal habeas claim. Right, makes sense. Uh, So that's why we're doing that now. The next ones are pretty quick because basically uh, Abu Jamal filed four additional post-conviction claims. His second claim in 2001, he had a confession from a guy named Arnold Beverly who claimed to have been hired with another man to by the mob and corrupt police officers to execute Daniel Faulkner. Uh, Beverly did give a videotaped statement, which uh-huh. is so unbelievable – it's not even funny because Beverly says that he was given a 38 and he also had a 22. Right. But Abu Jamal's supporters in public have argued that the medical examiner made a notation that the bullet that Officer Faulkner was shot with was a 44. So this is one of those situations where the stories and it you know the the story that Arnold Beverly was was telling didn't match up with the story told by Singletary and didn't match up with the story told by Harmon. Mhm. So um and then he they they filed a declaration from a woman by the name of Carrie Moore Carter who claimed to have been a court reporter at the court in Philadelphia who had overheard Judge Sabo making a racially charged statement to someone else basically that he was going to help them fry the N-word. Okay. Her her affidavit or declaration is kind of unclear. She claims she started working uh, at the court in February of 1982. She says a few months later, she was called to cover a courtroom that wasn't her usual courtroom. And there was some kind of hearing and a plea. And she overheard Judge Sabo making the remark. She doesn't identify who he was speaking to. She doesn't identify where 
the statement was. Where were they? Were they in a courtroom? Were they in chambers? Were they in a break room? Were they, you know, there's no detail. Uh, There's no exact date of when it might have been made. The pretrial hearings were all before Judge Ribner. And I believe at the time Judge Ribner was uh, was sitting in uh, as a judge, no judge had been assigned for the trial yet. Okay. And they claimed that she was the court reporter during the trials, but none of the trial transcripts that I've ever been able to find have her name on them. Right. Um, and, you know, the Wadir transcripts are all a different court reporter, not Terry Moore Carter. Um, so basically the 2001 PCRA was dismissed because it wasn't timely. The uh, date on the affidavits was more than 60 days prior to the filing of the uh, claim and under the law instituted in 1995 you had certain periods of time that were not could not be told which means the clock ran and once it ran you're done there's no no cause for filing late or anything like that with the exception of if you have a PCR claim on appeal you can't file a new one until the first one concludes. Okay. Um, so that one was dismissed. Uh, also, the you know the statements from Beverly and Moore Carter were not deemed to be credible, uh, and the delay in each of them coming forward was also, uh, you know, a pro- an issue. He filed another one in 2003 this time claiming new evidence, new witnesses, who one who claimed that Cynthia White admitted that her trial testimony was perjured, and a second one who claimed that his cousin was Priscilla Durham and that she told him in a phone call in 1982 that the cops made her say she heard Abu Jamal admit to killing Daniel Faulkner. Mm -hmm. That it never happened. She never heard any such a thing, but the police told her she was the security guard, she was part of the Brotherhood, and therefore she had to lie. Um, Again, it was dismissed because the witnesses had contacted Abu Jamal or his attorneys more than 60 days prior to the filing of the petition. Right. And uh, in 2009, he filed a fourth post-conviction petition uh, alleging that ballistic evidence, i.e. a medical examiner's notation that he thinks the bullet was a 44, uh, proves that the the state proffered perjured ballistic testimony. 
which said the bullet was a thirty-eight. Um, mm-hmm. That too was dismissed because it wasn't timely, and I believe that there was a declaration or maybe even testimony from the medical examiner who said uh, that he was guessing. Right. That, you know, he, he was going by looking at the bullet. He's not a ballistics expert. He didn't weigh it. He didn't measure it. He was just what he pulled from Daniel Faulkner's skull to him looked like a 44. But the actual measurements, because they, they had the ballistics uh, expert from Abu Jamal's trial, his own expert, testify, and the measurements of the bullet were actually consistent with a 38, not a 44. Huh. That one again, um, and that one, you know, that one didn't fly because the ballistics and even the note from the medical examiner all existed in 1982. And there was no reason that Abu Jamal couldn't have, you know, raised that in his first PCRA petition. Right. And then finally, his fifth claim he filed in 2016, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case uh, Terrence Williams versus Pennsylvania, in which they basically ordered a new trial on a case in which the Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, during some of the appeals, perhaps the direct appeal, uh, definitely PCRA, was the prosecutor who basically signed off on the death penalty for the defendant, Mr. Williams, in a murder case. And so they ordered, I think they reversed his conviction and vacated his conviction and ordered a new trial. Or a new, at least a new sentencing. And so... Uh, Abu Jamal petitioned the Pennsylvania Common Court of Common Pleas to uh, get a new trial because that same Chief Justice Castile decided his PCRA appeals and was the district attorney at the time of his direct appeal. The judge in that case And this one kind of baffles me. The judge, although he didn't find any evidence of an actual conflict, he essentially said that Abu Jamal has the right to re-argue his PCRA appeals to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court because there is an appearance of impropriety based on uh, Justice Castile's tenure as DA and then sitting as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which it's an en banc court. 
it's, I think, seven justices, and they all decide. It's not like, you know, it's not like a trial court where that judge is the sole judge. And it's not even like the intermediate appellate courts where you have a panel of two or or three judges or five judges who decide. They sit in all seven, just like the U.S. Supreme Court, all nine, decide the case. But they think that Castile should have recused himself. Right. Um, The other reason I find it baffling is I I find it kind of hard to believe that a trial court can order a higher court to re-examine anything. Yeah, that makes no sense. Because it's generally the it's the other way around. Wait, hold on. So you said generally. So wait, that is how this works? That is possible? No. Well, no, not gen- not even generally. A generally was a poor term. It's, it's the say, appellate court go that yeah, that's like the private telling the captain what to do. Right. Makes so it will be interesting. Now, however, the judge did limit it. He believes, or he states, that it should be only on the briefs filed in connection with the original appeals of the post-conviction claim. Right. So it shouldn't be to rebrief, to re-argue, or any of that. It should just be basically on the brief. But like I said, I find it kind of hard to to believe that a trial court can tell the state's highest court that it has to re-examine appeals. Because and and the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court addressed the request that was made to Judge Justice Castile to recuse, and they didn't uh-huh. find that he had to recuse. <clears throat> so uh, right. it'll be interesting to see whether the Supreme Court will just go ahead and for the. You know, appearance of propriety to go ahead and re-examine all of those PCRA claims and right. render an opinion. Um, so that will that process the the decision was made in December of 2018. There was a challenge by the new progressive. Philadelphia DA uh, Judge Tucker filed a supplemental memorandum opinion which narrowed the issues to a degree and the district attorney ended up withdrawing his challenge to Judge Tucker's order so the case is being transferred from Superior Court which is the Intermediate Appellate Court up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. 
But it'll be interesting to see if the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says, wait a second. You don't tell us what to do. They may end up, I mean, they may, you know, on their own look at the allegations of against Justice Castile and decide that Tucker was totally off the mark. Right. Um, I, I just don't think the interests of justice is, are served for anybody because I, I read all of the appellate opinions with the exception of the 2009 because I don't have the original 2009 order dismissing that PCRA claim and the uh, 2012 uh, opinion from the Supreme Court just says affirmed. It doesn't really go into any detail. But the other opinions, they analyzed the issues, and it wasn't just Justice Castile. It was six other judges, justices. Uh And in fact, I think one of the opinions isn't even authored by Justice Castile. He just joined in the opinion. I think two were written by other justices and one was written by Castile. Hmm. Okay. So, um, uh, and, and it was the, they weren't, there were no dissents. There weren't even any concurring opinions. It appears that they were either procurium, which is the whole court, or justices joined, but nobody dissented. Nobody said, wait a second, wait a second, this isn't fair. You know, he was representing himself. He should have been able to question the jury. Shouldn't have worried about how many days it took. The judge was wrong. You know, like we saw with Kevin Cooper with that hundred and something page dissent out of the Ninth Circuit. Right. So, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. With the uh, re-arguing of the PCRA yeah, appeals, <clears throat> but uh, like I said, based on what I read in each one of the opinions, you know, there was nothing untoward about the analysis of the issues or the finding that either the evidence lacked merit or lack credibility, and that the claims lack merit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that brings us to the end uh, for tonight. Okay. And um, this is a this is a long, complicated case. Uh, last year, yeah. it was thirty-seven years. And, uh, yeah, coming up in July, it's 37 years since he was convicted and sentenced. That's, uh, that's got to be approaching a record from sentencing to execution. Well, we'll, we'll go into that next week. I don't want to, I don't want to do any spoilers tonight. 
Oh, okay. My bad. <laughs> have Have you watched Barrel of a Gun? I have not been able to watch it yet, but I plan on trying to watch it. It's hard for me okay. to watch stuff mostly unless I can catch it on my PS4 on, like, streaming channels like that, but uh, I'll definitely try to work it out this week. Okay, because it's still, it, it's been extended. So, uh, it's free on Vimeo right now. I, I, I okay. sent you that link. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's a second okay. one on Vimeo I sent you the link for. That's a pro Abu Jamal documentary but I want to talk okay. about those a little bit next week okay so okay. I'm sorry Michael but you have homework okay you okay, have assignments that. you have to get done okay do you want to do, uh, do you want an essay this? um yes <laughs> 500 words Ooh, <laughs> Try and watch, sit down with Brad and watch it, and then y'all can put your heads together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it may take every bit of our heads to come up with 500 words. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So another one. Put a bow on it. We done. Listen. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week on Monday, May 6th for Part 4 of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania – versus Mamiya Abu-Jamal. We'll conclude our look at Abu-Jamal's case with a discussion of his federal habeas proceedings and the conclusory allegations and rhetoric that have been made in the media during the 38 years since Abu-Jamal's conviction. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. Good night.